How about this next patient, a 52-year-old woman with locally advanced disease you treated with carbodosataxel and thoracic radiation and then more chemo, who then presented six months later feeling poorly? She developed worsening cough and dyspnea and some right-sided chest pain. And uh, restaging PET scan showed that the right upper lobe mass had increased in size and the SUV was elevated as well. She also had some new pulmonary nodules. And so a decision was made at that point to start therapy for progressive lung cancer. And she received cisplatinum and pemetrexid from October to December. What happened then? Well, towards the end of the therapy, she had a restaging scan and she was actually progressing while on therapy. She had an increasing productive cough and the tumor had increased to over six centimeters. So she wasn't tolerating the therapy all that well. So we stopped it and entertained options for third line therapy at that point. Mark, now I'm starting to think, I was going to say in the beginning, would you like to see an EGFR mutation test? And then I thought, well, it's not going to really change anything. But would you like to see one now? Well, no. Or would you like to see one before the last decision? No, I mean, I think certainly way back when she presented with stage three disease, I don't know what to do in the presence of an EGFR mutation. We certainly don't have any positive data. In fact, there's some data that suggests that EGFR TKI use in the stage three setting following chemo radiotherapy may lead to worse outcomes, although I think that result in SWOG 0023 remains unexplained to date in terms of why that should have been. Initially, you know, she was an adeno. She had a pretty long smoking history. She had smoked from her teenage years to the time that she presented. So she had 30 pack plus years, one pack per day. You know, I think all of us are in the process of learning who we should be mutation testing. I happen to know that this lady is of African-American ethnicity. And knowing her smoking status with her ethnicity, I think the likelihood of finding an EGFR mutation in this patient would have been relatively low. So, you know, I guess if I thought that this was a patient that was not an optimal candidate for platinum-based therapy, and I was looking for a reason to deviate from the standard of care in this population. It was interested in using a drug like erlotinib I would have tested, but I didn't get the sense in seeing this patient that given all the factors that I would have pushed to get an EGFR mutation done in October of 2009 before she started on the cisplatinum pemetrexid. I guess I'm just trying to guess ahead. And you said she looks good today, so I figure something good must have happened to her. So, <laughs> And hey, what did happen to her, Matt? Well, then in, I guess it was January of this year, we had some clinical trials going on in the office and we explored a few options and there was opportunity for her to get onto the Metmab erlotinib trial, which she qualified for and started in January. She did well receiving Metmab combined with erlotinib at 150 milligrams a day and has basically been tolerating it well from January until now. And what's going on in terms of tumor measurements or evaluation? Well, apparently the clinical trial folks had done a MetMab analysis on her tumor, and she's met negative. And so I guess data from the trial group had shown that the MET negative group did not respond. In fact, may have actually been some harm in people getting MetMab. So they asked us to take her off trial, which just happened over the summer. But in spite of that, she's actually tolerated therapy well, and her tumor responded. She probably... The tumor decreased in size about 15 to 20% from its maximum size and then has just very slowly progressed and she is probably back at around where her baseline was at the present time. How did she do dermatologically with the erlotinib? I would say she had a very mild acneiform rash on her back and chest and arms primarily, a little bit on her face and really minimal diarrhea, if any. Mark, what's MetMab? 
MetMab is an antibody to CMET. CMET seems to be an important mechanism for growth and proliferation, and a certain percentage of non-small cell lung cancer patients may also be important in small cell. Rumors are that certain people are excited about the data, but I haven't seen the data yet. We did not participate in the trial. But I was impressed that Matt had her on this trial. And actually, I was impressed that this lady had gone on to Erlotinib in the trial in January and actually had a bit of a minimal response and might not have qualified for a resist criteria, but I think she clearly got clinical benefit from it. She remains on Erlotinib at full dose, 150 milligrams daily. She seems to have a pretty good quality of life. I talked to her quite a bit about her day-to-day sorts of things. She's fortunate in that she has a very supportive family, and she probably could do more that she's doing, but her statement was her family kind of does everything for her, so it makes her life easy. And so she's done well. She's about two years into her diagnosis and over a year into her diagnosis of stage four disease. And I thought the fact that she had been on Erlotinib for now coming up on 10 months and still seemingly having some benefit from it was really a win for her at this point. And she really, as Matt said, has been tolerating it quite well. She had no GI toxicity and you know, she tried to show me the rash on her arms today and stuff like that, but I wasn't overly impressed with the amount of rash she had today. So she seems to be doing well on it. What have you observed in terms of the dermatologic effects, Mark, of Erlotinib in African-American people? Well, we're running a trial in conjunction with the Ohio State folks, and there's some issues about the pharmacokinetics of Erlotinib in the African-American population, as well as, you know, this probably is, as we've learned about alterations in the EGFR pathway, maybe great differences based upon ethnicity when you compare an Asian population, which has a much higher rate of EGFR mutations with a Caucasian, and it seems like the African-American patients seem to have a lower rate of EGFR mutations. The trial that we're running is looking at a couple of different dosing strategies, looking at rash as a toxicity. We don't have any data from that yet. We presented some data on the molecular aspects of lung cancer in the African-American population at the AACR meeting in Adasco this year, but it's still kind of preliminarily about this. There is a report in the Journal of Clinical Oncology I forget who reported this, it's within the last year or so, that suggested that, again, this observation of having fewer EGFR mutations as a percentage in this population compared to Caucasian or Asian population. So I think we have a bit to learn both about dosing strategies as well as the percentage of patients that are going to have EGFR mutations and therefore would get benefit. Did you mention, in terms of the type of acneiform rash, et cetera, is it pretty much the same with African-American patients? My impression has been yes. Now, it can be, because of skin pigmentation, a bit more difficult, or the rash may not look as virulent as it may be in Caucasian populations. But from an appearance point of view, I haven't noticed a difference in it. You know, my general sense, at least in the patients that I've treated, has been that The rash, at least in my experience, has not been as severe as I've seen in other patients. And certainly that was true of the patient we saw today, that she had been on full dose for many months and was not having much in the way of skin toxicity for the most part. So I think we have a bit to learn about this phenomenon. It may be that there may be differences in pharmacokinetic handling of the drug based upon race that we don't quite understand yet. But again, I think the study that we're doing with Ohio State will provide some data on that. Matt, what's it been like at a personal level to take care of this woman the last 10 months? As you were describing the situation when she had progressive disease on the CISPEM, I was thinking, wow, this does not sound good. Mm -hmm. Was that your feeling and her feeling that things were kind of getting out of control? She has a very interesting personal philosophy, I guess. 
she's extremely optimistic and very kind of ebullient in her personality and you know she doesn't want to be a statistic is what she says a lot so sometimes that makes it a little bit of a challenge to have prognosis discussions with her and yeah i was worried when she was progressing on the cis pamatrexid and was she you know I don't know, facing the reality of her situation well enough to make an informed decision and all that sort of thing. And I guess we've had those discussions. She understands it's not a curable illness. But even today, she says, you know, I'm going to be alive in five years. And (laughs) I don't know. I hope so. But I guess I don't think she will be. So it's been a bit of a challenge, but she's been fun to take care of. She's really a very sweet woman. She gives me a huge hug every time I go in to see her. And so it's been a nice relationship. Yeah, it was my observation of her today was that she clearly understood that she did not have a curable disease. She understood that she did have a treatable disease. We talked a little bit, not in any detail, about the next option for her. She did make the statement that even though she knew she was not curable, she equated surviving five years as being cured. So Mm -hmm. her goal was to get to five years. And I said, well, you're 40% of the way there. You're about two years into your disease course. And, you know, I think that... The issue in her is just how long do you keep her on the erlotinib with slowly progressive disease and her having relatively few lung cancer-related symptoms at this point. Obviously, that's going to change at some point. Then what do you do next? So, you know, we're beginning to see more and more of these patients that get more than three lines of therapy. And, mm-hmm. and she may very well be one at this point. And, you know, that's where the data gets a little shaky in terms of how much benefit we give patients. But I think certainly there are patients like her that are motivated for treatment that are not ready to accept no treatment as a possibility. And although we don't know, you get the sense that in some patients you do provide clinical benefit for the patients with fourth and fifth line therapies. And you know, Matt, Mark was part of a recent think tank we do every summer, lung cancer investigators. And one of the things that came out there that was interesting, we had some EGFR mutation, you know, hotshot, you know, Tom Lynch is the Mm -hmm. co-chair and Greg Growley from Memorial was something I hadn't heard about before, Mark, was this idea that in some patients, like maybe something like this situation, who seem to respond and then have very slow progressive disease on EGFR, TKI, like erlotinib, to keep it going and then add something else in? Yeah, I think that certainly that's more of a philosophical issue than it is an issue that we have a lot of data on. But again, I think that these patients that seem to get clinical benefit have some evidence of objective response to erlotinib like this patient did. Oftentimes you see slow progression and would there be an opportunity to add something to the erlotinib is one strategy. The other strategy would be, you know, to stop the erlotinib, treat her with whatever you're going to do next. And then, you know, after a defined course, of fourth-line therapy, you go back and put her on erlotinib as kind of a maintenance approach. And I think that that sort of approach is more of a philosophical approach than it is one that's evidence-based. But certainly, we all have patients that we think have benefited from EGFR TKIs and then have slow progression. And we kind of look at that a little differently than we do with regard to chemotherapy use, Mm -hmm. maybe because it's easier to give an oral agent in a patient like this who's proven that she tolerates it well. Toxicity is really not a major issue. I think it makes you think out of the box a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, Matt, also, you can probably empathize with this, dealing with people with all different kinds of cancers, really breast cancer. We always get ER and HER2. I'm like, why are we not getting EGFR mutations on everybody? This lady, I mean, I don't even want to say that you ought to get an EML for alk mutation because Mark's going to say she won't have it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, what have you got to lose? 
Absolutely. I think that the challenge is tissue, availability of tissue and right. subjecting her to another biopsy and the lack of a commercially available agent. You know, this lady, you know, I think you could make an argument. Many people would have tried to pursue more vehemently the opportunity to get an EGFR mutation. And if that showed wild type, then, you know, the next thing to think about would be the EML4 ALK translocation. You know, again, my sense in this patient that, again, the odds are very much against this patient having either one of those molecular abnormalities. But again, I like the direction you're going in is that I think that you need to think about this in every lung cancer case. And I'm not saying that every lung cancer case should have mutation testing as a routine, But I think oncologists should think about whether or not they should be testing. And I think more times than not, you're probably going to do mutation testing, certainly more than that's been done in the past in this country. I think also thinking earlier on about getting more tissue, there was something else that came out at the think tank, you know, get a core from the beginning just in case. But, you know, now you're in a situation where you're going to have to re-biopsy. So, you know, I, I understand that. Yeah. So one more thing I want to ask both of you, and I'll begin with Mark, is what was it like today? Well, it was good. Obviously, one of the nice things about it is that I've known Matt for quite some time. He was one of our fellows at the University of North Carolina, and he's been up here for two years now. And I didn't quite know what to expect coming to this site. I knew Matt was in a group practice, but I really didn't know exactly what type of situation it was. I think after we saw about the fifth or sixth patient or so, we were sitting in his office, and I said, you know, Matt, you're really practicing a very high quality of lung cancer therapy up here. I mean, the patient are well-staged. The patients are informed about their treatment and their disease process. They're getting what I consider appropriate regimens. The sequence has been right. We saw several patients today that got multiple lines of therapy, first, second, and third. One of the patients was tested for EGFR mutations and those sorts of things. A couple of the patients were on clinical trials. The first one we saw was on the MetMab trial, and then the adjuvant guy was on the Magritte trial. So it took me a little over three hours to get up here, and I went on some roads that I really don't want to be on again to, to get to Roanoke, <laughs> Virginia, from Raleigh, North Carolina. But in this very rural, beautiful, mountainous part of Virginia, the quality of care, at least in this practice, is excellent. And I was actually very impressed with that. And I was also impressed with how well the patients were kind of informed about what was going on with them. They knew kind of what the goals were and what the options were and that kind of thing. And I think it was it was a very good experience for me. Matt and I talked a little bit today about One of the challenges we face in lung cancer, and that's the sense of therapeutic nihilism that many physicians have with this disease. And I think Matt's sensed that since he's been up here from some of the surgeons and pulmonologists. But I think this group, and particularly Matt, is doing a good job of bringing to the forefront that there are a number of treatment options, that the clinical trial process is important and can be done at the community level and can be done well, and that patients can benefit from thinking about current standards and the cutting-edge sorts of approaches. And I think we saw many patients today that I think were clearly really good examples of that. So Matt, what was it like to have one of your attendings come visit you in practice? (laughs) It was a lot of fun. I always enjoyed rotating through our MTOP, the clinic at UNC, and Mark was definitely one of the stellar professors there with a lot of great teaching over the years. So it was a lot of fun and brought back some good memories and it was enjoyable to, he gave some excellent advice and especially in our case, the 91 year old, or it gave me a little more ability to just sort of maybe rethink the whole overall plan and back off a little bit and, and some other nice pointers and suggestions in some of the other cases. So I'd say on balance, it was just a really good day. It was a lot of fun.